Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Air Force JAG School podcast. Today we're taking a look at the Defense Health Agency transition and answering questions about the changes to our military medical system and what both commanders and patients can expect moving forward. So you may be wondering, what is DHA? Why are we talking about this? DHA, or the Defense Health Agency, is a new DOD agency created by Congress to handle military medical for all branches. So now, instead of having medical command of the Army, Navy, or Air Force running the medical treatment facilities, or MTFs, all of the medical care provided to the military beneficiaries is being run by DHA. Well, at least that's what they're working on. You may be asking why DHA was created and why Congress thought the military needed it. What they said was that DHA can increase access to health care and make things easier, more efficient, and more organized for patients. And it will also allow medical command to focus on the bigger picture national security mission. And, of course, at the heart of any good congressional policy is the desire to save some money. Having so many different medical facilities on different bases, with a huge range of different medical services, and therefore sometimes more referrals than in-house appointments, and sometimes more facilities and medical providers than patients, was starting to cost an arm and a leg. As you can imagine, creating a brand new agency and taking control from three different military branches has not been easy. In fact, it's taken almost a decade. The transition has taken effect, and now we're finally starting to see it at the installation level after so many years at the policy level. So, what do you need to know about the transition? We asked Lieutenant Colonel Robert Voorhees and Lieutenant Colonel Justin Swick to answer some questions about the transition and what commanders and patients can expect now that the transition has happened. Lieutenant Colonel Voorhees is the Surgeon General's attorney. He's the JAG advising top Air Force medical leadership. Lieutenant Colonel Swick is the chief of the Medical Law Field Support Center, and he's in charge of the Medical Law Consultants, or MLCs, who are assigned to Air Force hospitals out in the field. Both Lieutenant Colonel Voorhees and Lieutenant Colonel Swick have seen how the transition has come about and the changes that have begun to take place. We first asked Lieutenant Colonel Voorhees how the DHA came to be. That's, so there's a lot of facts to compress into this answer, but uh, we'll try to handle it kind of in a, in a nutshell. DHA, as you said, is Defense Health Agency. It's a successor organization to the TRICARE Management Activity. Um, but to think about DHA and its existence and where we are today, I think we really need to kind of go back in time. Starting all the way in 1948, we have history that there have been 18 different military health system governance studies, right? Uh, so a lot of studying how this military health system should be structured. It resulted in 2011 in a DOD task force on its the most recent study, DOD Task Force on MHS Governance, which issued a report in September 2011 recommending a DHA model for MHS governance. That recommendation then went to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, who in March of 2012 directed additional planning for DHA implementation. Basically, they wanted to see a working group study this issue. The next step was um, Department of Defense Directive 5136.13, which more or less is the founding document that established the DHA. It made the DHA take over key duties of the TRICARE management activity. And, you know, the DHA mission as established in that DOTI is to manage TRICARE to manage the defense health program appropriation, what's also also referred to as DHP funds. And it, they had 
also management responsibility for shared services, functions, and activities. And they were authorized uh, to exercise authority, direction, and control over MTFs within the NCR that were assigned to DHA. So that's the initial construction of DHA until the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017. That's really the big moment in all of this. In 2017, the NDAA in Section 702 and 703 directed DHA to assume authority, direction, and control of all of the MTFs. And um, essentially, Section 702 says, beginning October 1st, 2018, the director of the Defense Health Agency shall be responsible for the administration of each military medical treatment facility. And, and that was a big moment. Um, you know, 703 of NDA 2017 said, required the Secretary of Defense to develop an implementation plan. So, so they did that, they put together a plan. It was gonna be a plan based, the DHA would have these various uh, markets. And so there would be large markets, there would be these kind of small and standalone NCFs that would be clumped together. And then there would be regions. There would be a region in Europe and a region in the Indo-Pacific. So as we were working through all that, then the next important piece to the puzzle was NDAA 2019. In NDAA 2019, Section 711, there was a lot of technical difficulties and issues and pushback from the services about implementing this transition to DHA authority, direction, and control of the MCS. And the timeline got bumped in NDAA 2019 from 1 October of 2018 as a deadline to no later than September 30th of 2021 to have the implementation done. And NDAA 2019 also, interestingly enough, it bolstered DHA's position of having authority, direction, control over the administration and management of the MTS. It, it, it clarified the roles that DHA would have and made it perfectly clear that they were responsible for all of the management of the healthcare aspect that takes place in the MTS. It also added a section 712, which uh, clarified the additional duties, added additional duties of the Surgeon Generals of the Armed Forces, and it assigned to them it gave them the authority to assign uniformed medical and dental personnel to the MTS for training purposes, but it also said that they were responsible to ensure the readiness for operational deployment of medical and dental personnel. So this is the piece that makes it really clear that the surgeon generals are the ones who assign military providers to the MTS, and the surgeon generals are the ones who are responsible for the readiness for operational deployment of these medical forces. So with the passing of those laws, the Defense Health Agency became the authority for all of medical aspects of the military medical system. Practically speaking, we were wondering, how does this affect the command structure at the wing or installation level? Lieutenant Colonel Voorhees explained that the role of the installation commander has changed because the role of the Surgeon's General has changed. Before, the Surgeon's General controlled all aspects of the military medical system, including making the policies that affected the medical care and services offered at the MTF. MTFs have always had two tent poles of responsibility. On the one hand, they provide medical services including things like pediatric care, immunizations, cancer treatment, and even brain surgery, just as any civilian hospital would. But uniquely, they also have military command structure and they make sure not only that our uniformed medical providers are able to go out in the field and provide treatment for our wounded in the theater, but also that our entire force is medically ready and fit to fight. The Surgeon General used to be in charge of both aspects, but now with the transition, 
DHA will handle the medical side of the house, while the surgeons, and through the chain of command, the installation commanders, are responsible for military readiness. You're talking about the installation commander and what's what's he or her going to, what are they going to see with regards to this transition? The fact is that I liken it almost to a tenant host relationship. DHA is going to have responsibility for what goes on inside that MCF as it relates to everything associated with the the healthcare really that goes on in there. So, you know, if the airman Jones wants to go in there and needs to get an appointment, he's going to make an appointment with the primary care manager and, and go in there. And that the rules that, that structure what kind of care he gets generally, if it's just normal healthcare, it, it's all going, to, all going to be governed by DHA. And, and I just want to chime in very quickly. Uh, I mean, DHA is not a civilian organization. DHA is a, a branch of DOD. Uh, they just happen to be a purple branch of DOD. Uh, so the, the fundamental concept of an MTF uh, is changing in the manner in which it's being uh, overseen and, and run. But the the fundamental concept is not changing at all. It's still run by DOD. The the purpose of the NDAA change uh, was to to bring all of the services MTF uh, under one roof. Uh, When you look at the mission of a a medical uh, treatment facility on base, uh, it has really two fundamental purposes. Uh, One is to operate as a hospital or a clinic, uh, to take sick people in and make them better, whether that's uh, an, an active duty airman, uh, or a retiree who just happens to have uh, access to that facility uh, through their benefits. Uh, of course, the other uh, purpose of an MTF uh, is to maintain readiness uh, for the military, make sure people get their shots, uh, make sure people get their annual physicals, that they go from red to green uh, off their IMR. So it's these two fundamental purposes that are going to remain after this. Uh, that readiness mission is still going to belong to the installation wing commander because that is uh, the job of an installation wing commander uh, is to uh, train and equip um, forces ready to deploy at a moment's notice uh, around the world. So um, really the the purpose of an MTF is going to be bifurcated now. Half of it is going to be overseen by DHA, the healthcare delivery aspect. And then the other half is going to be seen by the wing commander as always. And there's going to be some bumps as we figure out uh, you know, what particular uh, job duty within the MTF belongs in which bucket, whether that's the installation commander's uh, authority to train and equip versus DHA's authority to oversee healthcare delivery. I would add that a, a year or so ago, maybe two years ago now, the Air Force Surgeon General directed um, that there would be a change kind of in the structure internally to our MTFs such that there is now an operational medical readiness squadron piece to most MTFs and a healthcare uh, operations squadron. So the health, the HCOS healthcare operations squadron within the MTF focuses on delivery of, of healthcare to beneficiaries and dependents, whereas the OMRS or operational medical readiness squadron within the MCF focuses on the active duty and on the care that they need in order to be medically ready. And so most of our airmen are now assigned to those OMRS and being seen in clinics that are, at least for primary care, exclusively for active duty members. So that is one small change that's been ongoing over the last year or two um, to, to really get after the readiness issues. And as Lieutenant Colonel Swick said, you know, the, uh, the installation commander is still going to be responsible for the overall readiness of the force to, to get out the door for deployments. And, and um, this, is, this is how this is accomplished, is through this OMRS construct. And um, 
and he'll still have the, the ability to to have um, visibility into that aspect. Policy changes aren't the only way that the installation command roles have been affected by the transition. The question now becomes, who's calling the shots at the MTF? If the installation and group commanders are in charge of readiness, but DHA is in charge of the actual medical process, who is running the medical group? I asked Lieutenant Colonel Voorhees to break down and explain the different leadership roles. So let me let me start by kind of describing a little bit better maybe the the construct. So for DHA, they have a market construct, and essentially that means there are areas where we have major medical facilities, full-scale, full-service hospitals. You know, a prime example would be something like um, you have Bamsey Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, and that's a full-size hospital. And so for DHA, what they've done is in areas that have one of these full-service hospitals, they make a market of the smaller MTFs and clinics around there and lump them together, and they'll call that the large uh, healthcare markets. There are 21 of those that I'm tracking, uh, and last I saw, 19 of those large markets had been established, uh, a couple left to go. Uh, in addition to the large markets where, you know, they're essentially trying to find efficiencies across that space uh, for services, there's also a, a series of what they call small market and standalone military treatment facilities organizations called the SSO. And this oversees, uh, I'm tracking about 17 different uh, SSO kind of organizations under their uh, and then, in addition to all of that, they're going to have a region in Europe and a region in Indo-Pacific that will cover all of those MTFs. So when we talk about, you said, the DHA director, there are multiple levels here. One is the DHA director, which is uh, Lieutenant General Ronald Place. He's an Army three-star. So he's the director of DHA. But then at the market level, you're going to end up having one of the MTF commanders inevitably uh, tapped to be the DHA market director. And as the market director, they would try to execute DHA policy across that market. And then, of course, within the individual MTS, you have the med group commander who's dual-hatted now. They, they are dual-hatted uh, with a service commander hat and with a DHA MTF director hat. And with the MTF director hat, they execute the DHA mission of administration and management of the MTF and the healthcare that takes place in there. With the service commander hat, they do the service commander assignments and, and all the various uh, pieces and parts that are service directly service connected, um, some readiness issues uh, that they had before. You may be wondering, how will this whole transition actually affect me as a patient? Practically speaking, for people who are coming to the MTF, you know, whether it's an active duty person or a dependent, um, you know, when we think about medical versus military readiness at the MTF, how will that break down? If I'm an active duty member and I go in to go to the doctor, do I still see my same doctor? Uh, you know, do I still have a uniform doctor treating me and I could still get referred somewhere else? How does that start to look at the MTF level? Yeah, I don't think the transition will be necessarily visible to patients um, at all. Uh, you know, there may be some some small changes, but, uh, you know, the MTF is 
is going to continue to function um, probably the way it always has. The organization of the MTFs um, will be different, uh, but you know I don't think that will be um, visible to the, the the patient who's coming in for for duties. Um, so uh, hopefully that the transition goes smoothly and that that transition is not visible uh, to the patients. But I, I don't anticipate a a, a large a change in, in the way that healthcare is delivered, at least you know, on the ground level. When I was a medical law consultant, there was a lot of concern about whether our uniformed medical personnel were on their way out, and that with the DHA transition and a potential increase in the number of off-base referrals and even shutting down some clinics, the need for military medical providers would fall off and cuts would be made. No, no. I haven't heard anything about active duty military docs losing their jobs specific to specifically related to the MHS transition or DHA taking over authority, direction, and control of the MTFs. Of course, manning is its own kind, you know, and planning and programming are all, all their own kind of issues and questions and are driven largely by budgets. Uh, at this point in time, I haven't heard of massive cuts or doctors losing their jobs associated with this effort. Uh, that doesn't mean that in future years there won't be budgetary cuts much as, as we go through from time to time. Just a point of clarification that as part of a overall service um, manpower reduction that uh, is ongoing and the discussions are ongoing, there is some some portion of Air Force medical service billets and positions that, that may be lost in the near future. But I don't tie that directly to this this effort, this MHS transition effort, but but more to uh, the services in general, uh, losing some some manpower authorizations. Of course, these major seismic changes to the military medical system have been overshadowed by bigger medical news, the COVID nineteen pandemic. I know that we know, as Colonel Voorhees said earlier, uh, this really came to be came into being. Really, you know, 2011, we started really having this conversation. Obviously, now it's 2021. Um, so I know that there were some initial timelines and then some edited timelines as things went on and things started to roll out. And, you know, we're, we're sort of figuring it out as we go. Um, but what, uh, what has, in this timeline, what really has been affected by COVID? Has it slowed down the transition at all? Because obviously... Everybody in the MHS had to pivot to focus on, you know, global pandemic. So some of the bureaucracy and the administration is maybe not the focal point. Um, but what effect did COVID have? And uh, what is the plan after that moving forward? Where are we in the transition? I think like the rest of society, COVID um, caused some difficulties and the transition was paused for a period of time. So uh, I, I would say it's fair to say that the uh, transition is probably behind where someone would expect it to be uh, two or three years ago. Uh, but but I don't think it fundamentally changed anything about the transition itself. It just slowed it down. And where we are in the transition right now, so that October 1st of this year was, was a big date, and that would be the date that the DHA takes uh, full control over the MTFs. Um, now, that that is going to be a process. Uh, and just to give you a, an idea, uh, there, a small part of the transition is is the legal portion. That's the part that we do. Uh, so DHA right now is they're, they're busy uh, standing up their markets, 
hiring personnel, putting them in place, um, going through the MTFs. Uh, there's a certification process uh, to make sure that the, the MTFs are within the standards that DHA has set uh, for the MTFs. All of that is ongoing. Uh, they're, as, as I mentioned, they're behind where you would expect them to be and COVID was a big part of that, but that process is moving forward. Uh, that October 1st date um, of this year has come and gone, so DHA has assumed control. Uh, however, um, the, the transition is still still slowly moving along. You know, nothing magical happened on October 1st. It's not like uh, everybody came into their office and, and the walls were painted a, a DHA color instead of an Air Force color. For our JAG listeners, we also asked Lieutenant Colonel Swick and Lieutenant Colonel Voorhees what our base legal offices need to know about the transition. Um, so yeah, speaking of the base legal office, what do they need to know about the transition? What does their new role look like? And who would, you know, uh, MLCs used to be the reach back point for those kinds of questions. Um, what will that new setup look like? Well, there's going to be uh, probably two things that that's kind of a two-part question. You know, one is what do they need to know right now? And then what are they going to need to know when the transition is complete? So I'll, I'll first address, you know, where we are right now. Uh, so I'm, I'm counting, you know, of the 76 MTFs that we have worldwide, as of this date, uh, DHA has informed me that seven of those facilities, um, DHA is ready to start providing full-spectrum legal advice uh, to those facilities. So that's less than 10%, just to give you some indication of where we are in the process. Now, a month from now, maybe we're up to 20%, maybe we're up to 15%. It really is going to depend on, on, on DHA. You know, that's not a decision we're going to make for them. Uh, we're going to continue to support uh, our MTFs, our MTF commanders, do what we've always done to meet the mission uh, until that happens. So if I'm a captain in the base legal office and I have a medical legal question, um, most bases at this point still have an MLC to call. Uh, now, if, if you happen to be at one of those uh, seven bases that have transitioned to DHA, it'd probably be a good idea to know that. Um, and we've been in consistent contact with the SJAs for those facilities to make sure that they understand that uh, their MTFs have transferred, that the dynamic is different, that they may have uh, a different, um, you know, chain of command, so to speak, uh, for MTF legal support, and they need to be aware of that. So that's a good segue into what is it going to look like at the end of this transition? What are base, um, base legal office attorneys going to have to know three years from now or two years from now or even a year from now when this transition is complete? It's going to be critical, I think, for base SJAs and the civil law chief or whoever has oversight over uh, some of the issues um, you know, around the MTF, it's going to be critical for them to know uh, who the DHA attorney is um, for their for their particular MTF. Uh, DHA is going to be more or less a tenant unit on base. Uh, they're going to have their own equities um, at that MTF. Uh, and just like other tenant units uh, on a base, you're going to have to develop a relationship. Just to give you an example, if there's a, a military medical provider uh, who commits some sort of misconduct, um, perhaps um, you know, there's a patient complaint that leads to an investigation. Now, that's misconduct that may have uh, clinical implications. And the DHA attorney, just like the MLC uh, has always done, will usher through that clinical adverse action process to review the privileges and make sure that there's not a threat to patient safety. Now, that may also be a UCMJ concern. 
Uh, and there's going to be some questions about medical records and, and who does the investigation and who's able to share the outcome of that investigation. Um, there's going to be a lot of coordination that needs to be done. Traditionally, that's been done with the MLC. Um, at the end of this transition, it's going to have to be done with DHA. So a good, healthy working relationship um, with DHA attorney, whether that's at the market or the attorney actually co-located in the MTF, depending on the location. That's going to be very important for base legal office attorneys uh, to know that. Uh, I'll, I'll also say that there's going to be a portion of the MLC's traditional legal portfolio that's going to stay with the Air Force. Uh, so that's going to be a retained medical law mission, mostly stuff related to the installation commander's authorities who oversee military medical readiness. Um, for example, uh, you know, COVID vaccination process is ongoing. There are many questions that the installation commander has for that process to make sure his troops are uh, in accordance with SecDef's vaccination mandate. Those questions may not be appropriate for DHA. It's going to be appropriate for um, whoever in the Air Force JAG Corps is the medical law subject matter expert. Uh, and traditionally, that question would go to the MLC. But if the MLC position has been eliminated at that base, they may have to call um, up here to um, you know, the civil law domain uh, and speak to a, a medical military, you know, medical law expert. Uh, to help get that specific guidance so that they're able to advise that installation commander on his uh, military health readiness uh, mission. So really, it, it might be a little more complicated at first. They're going to have to perhaps work with DHA, also know who to go for medical reachback support. Uh, but this is nothing that um, is going to be too complicated. It's just going to be a matter of communicating with, uh, with me, uh, communicating with uh, your regional MLC to make sure that that base legal offices are aware of when their base is transitioning and, and who they need to call uh, when they need the support that they need. And of course, we were wondering, is there anything else that commanders need to know? So I, I think that's a good question. And uh, I think the one thing that commanders are gonna have to know is that uh, there are some, there's some unknowns in this process. Um, they, they probably have more questions uh, than I think DHA uh, or anyone in the um, Air Force medical community may have answers for. Um, these are complicated questions, right? These are, um, you know, this, this is a new process for a lot of people. I, I think the question of, you know, it's easy to, to talk theoretically about, you know, what is healthcare delivery versus, you know, what is military medical readiness? It, it's harder in practice, right? Because there's a lot of things that happen under the roof of that MTS. And I think there's going to be a lot of things that happen that perhaps fall into both buckets. And there's going to be a question of, well, does, does DHA have authority over this? This is healthcare delivery. Um, but it's also military readiness. Something as simple as getting your COVID shot. Now, that's a medical procedure. Uh, you know, getting any kind of vaccination is a medical procedure, and it's overseen by DHA. But it's also something critical uh, to maintaining readiness. So the installation commander has an equity there of that shot going in that airman's arm. Uh, so, you know, who oversees that process? Uh, who has the ability to make changes to that process? And for our perspective, who advises on that process? These are harder questions than I think anybody really um, is, is prepared uh, to, to handle. It doesn't mean we're not going to get there. I think it just means that there may be some, some patience uh, and maybe an understanding that there's going to be some issues where we're going to have to huddle uh, with our DHA attorney counterparts 
uh, and come to an agreement that, you know, this is something that, you know, that falls into this bucket or maybe falls into both and let's, let's come to a meeting of the minds on it. Uh, so uh, my, my best advice to commanders and SJAs or anyone that may be trying to track this and work through this transition is that, you know, be patient. Um, you know, this is, um, you know, this is, this is splitting a, a, this is splitting a cruise ship into two different cruise ships. Uh, you know, this is, this is, <laughs> this is, might not be the best analogy, but this is really trying to um, create a new process, um, meet Congress's intent, uh, and make sure that we, um, you know, that everyone knows what they need to do and where they need to go at the end of this process. And there's a reason why it's a transition and why uh, everything just didn't magically um, uh, transition overnight. Yeah, I think those are valid comments. There are certainly some some unknowns as we uh, get closer to the final implementation and DHA taking authority direction control over the MTF. So I'll just mention that um, the overseas defense health regions are scheduled to be stood up in spring of 2022. So that's kind of the timeline for the last pieces to shift over to DHA. And I'll just mention as well that communication is really important, as Lieutenant Colonel Swick said, and that we're really leveraging the dual-hatted nature of the MTF commander to help accomplish that communication mission. You know, some of the issues that he brought up about it can be a uniform code of military justice issue, and it can also be a DHA issue, you know, it can be a service issue and DHA issue. Well, that's why they're dual-hatted, so that we can make sure that information can flow through the service uh, side as well. So, as with many other things, the best advice we can give everyone at this point is to be patient and stand by and to do your best to stay in the loop at your own base so you're tracking when the transition will hit your MTF and how it will affect your installation. We want to give a special thanks to Lieutenant Colonel Voorhees and Lieutenant Colonel Swick for sitting down and chatting with us and answering our questions. For more information about DHA and the military health system, you can go to health.mil. And as always, reach out to your local base legal office or medical law consultant for more info on medical law issues. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the AFJAGS podcast so you'll know every time we publish a new episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School podcast. One of the best ways you can support this publication is by following or subscribing the show and leaving us a rating. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil slash podcasts. We welcome your feedback. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of its guests and hosts. Thank you.